listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, as we get set to mark Remembrance Day, we speak about all facets of remembering. I speak with an Afghanistan veteran who lost both his legs to an IED in 2008 about what the day means to him, the struggles he and many veterans of that conflict and their families continue to face, and why his pride in having served his country never fades. We preview a new series on the History Channel called Our War, that follows descendants of Canadians who served in the First and Second World Wars as they search to find out more about what they did and the impact they had. We meet this year's Silver Cross mother, Gloria Hooper of St. Claude, Manitoba. Her son, Chris Holopina, was killed back in 1996 while serving as a peacekeeper in Bosnia. His mother remembers his want to become a soldier from a very early age, his weekly phone calls from far away, no matter where he was during his three tours of duty, and what it means to her to represent all mothers who've lost a son or daughter in the line of duty at this year's Remembrance Day ceremonies in Ottawa. But first, soldiers on the front lines of the First World War sent countless postcards home. They were the text messages of their time, a way to quickly inform family, friends, and community back home of what you were doing overseas. A project at Western University has compiled and archived some 15,000 of these postcards. And this year, they're mailing replicas of some of them to the same addresses that they were sent to more than a century ago. We find out more. When was the last time you got a postcard? Now, this came up today for our first story, and I was trying to think back the last time I got a postcard. It has to be years and years and years ago. They were such an important part of, um, for most of us, I think, growing up, we would send postcards from places we may be, whether it be on a quick holiday or away for longer. And of course, of course, um, soldiers sent postcards all the time all the time for generations. They were like the text messages of their day, right? Um, a quick way to let family and friends back home know how you were doing, a photo showing you where you were, maybe a quick scribble, a hello, a question for what was going on. Uh, and during the First World War, soldiers and others on or near the front lines sent countless postcards home. And over the past 15 years, a history professor at Western University in London, Ontario, Jonathan Vance, uh, has spent years, he spent 15 years collecting, reading, and archiving postcards as part of a uh, project that involves war, memory, and popular culture. It's a collection that's held at Western. And so for Remembrance Day this year, uh, they've taken this project and they've done something really fascinating with it. And it's all about sending postcards, which, of course, very few people still do these days. Um, here's how he describes it. It struck me that the perfect way to kind of connect the past with the present would be taking some of these old postcards, changing them around a little bit and sending them out to houses that still existed. We have a little message on each postcard saying who the person was and, and their experience during the war. When someone gets a card at their home, I'm hoping that they will pause, look at the picture, look at the message, and really think about these were actual people who lived in your house. They walked down your streets. Isn't that amazing? They're going to send out 400 replica postcards to the original addresses across the country, right across the country, uh, that received them originally more than a century ago. Now, they're focusing on bigger cities this time out just because the logistics of trying to find the addresses so much has changed over the last hundred and some years that tracking down these addresses was actually a, a very long task. Big cities for now, they're going to they're gonna tackle smaller towns and rural communities in the future. But the project is to send these replica postcards um, to these addresses so the people who live there now understand the ties to history that exist. Can you imagine you live in a house and you receive one of these postcards that was addressed from a soldier to his family or uh, 
more than 100 years ago from somewhere on the front lines in Europe. Um, with more on this, though, Jonathan Vance, I wanted to know more about it. So he joins me now from London. Jonathan, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. It's interesting. We I, I've read so much and seen so much about the letters written from the battlefields, right? These long sort of letters that go into great detail. But postcards, I mean, you compare them to sort of the text messages of the day, right? But postcards tell a really interesting story about the lives of those who served overseas. Exactly. And and a postcard was something you sent usually between letters. And oftentimes, soldiers will apologize for sending only a postcard. But it was their way to, you want to reassure your family. So you, you dash off a few lines, which is really all you got room for. Tell them you're okay. Tell them all as well. And, and it served its purpose. And so it works for the soldier, but it also works for the, for the family because they can get news that much more frequently. And this is, this is the only way they have to communicate. And, and there were many of them. I mean, you found many of them that were sent. This was by no means something that was uncommon. This happened a lot. Postcards went around the world and literally in the billions. When you remember that in most cases, this was before telephones, it was certainly before any other modern conveniences. So this is is how you sent uh, news of any sort. I mean, you see postcards that say everything from, I'm coming in on the 450 train, please pick me up with the carriage, to our mother died this morning, come home, everything. So it's it's an interesting, it gives you an interesting slice of everyday life a century and a bit ago. Yeah, what, uh, what, prompted your interest in in that form of communication from from the front well you're right we we hear about these long letters that soldiers wrote we hear about these these specially printed postcards that where you crossed out the things that didn't apply to you field service postcards they were called most soldiers didn't write long letters they were not educated people they weren't used to writing long epistles to family or friends so the postcard is a much more egalitarian kind of means of communication Anybody can pick one up. Anybody can afford to send one. They cost a penny or two to, to mail. You can actually mail them free from the front during the First World War. So you really get across the social spectrum, the social and educational spectrum of countries at war, because the uh, the upper class people use them for the same reason why the working class soldiers use them, because it allows them to get news home quick. How long would it have taken a postcard to come to get from sort of the battlefields of Belgium in in nineteen you know in in the nineteen tens to back it, to Canada? Yeah, it probably would have taken about ten days. Right, that's fast. Um, it was it's fast to us, but to them it would have been blindingly fast. Uh, so they all went by by ship, but important things like mail were carried by the quicker ocean liners. So they went remarkably rapidly. Once once they reached Canada, it was not too far off from overnight delivery. Post office was very efficient in those days. Right. And in fact, if you were sending them from the front to relatives in the UK, it could get from the battlefield to, to home in two days, three days, maybe. It must have been such a comfort for the families to receive these. I mean, I don't want to call them proof of life, but in some senses, that's what they were, right? Oh, very much so. And you can see, I have a number that were not tourist postcards, but photos of the of the soldier that they sent on as postcards. And often they write on the back, you can see I'm looking well, or this sort of thing. It is, people do take it as verification that all is good. And that at that particular moment in time, your loved one is safe. Have they held up? Well, I, I mean, I'm just trying to picture what post a 110-year-old postcard might look like and how it might have survived the years. 
They have held up remarkably well. And part of the secret, I think, is another note you, you typically see on postcards is put this away for the, for the future or, or save this as a souvenir or here's one to add to your collection. So they were they really had two purposes. They were to give information very quickly, but they were also to act as a record for the future of what the family had been through. And so I think a lot of families took that to heart and preserved these things very carefully. And they were, uh, so you see some in, in lovely condition that have been carefully packed away for, for 100 years or more. And part of the appeal for us with this project was to to get some of these things that have been hidden away for a century and, and allow other people to enjoy them in 2023. Right. Because I should mention, I mean, part of this it is a project to try and track down um, some of the houses, the addresses, and and send those postcards back to whomever happens to live there now uh, to, to sort of sh- show that thread of history that someone, you know, 100, and, 100 more years ago now, more than a century ago, someone in this very home would have been waiting impatiently for this to arrive. Yeah. So in a, in a very real sense, in, say, 1916, a letter carrier came to this home with this postcard from the front. And now in 2023, a very similar letter carrier is bringing a reproduction of this postcard to the same home. So it's a nice kind of completion of the circle, I guess. It's making the journey twice, but really for the same purpose, to to convey information about this historical event and to, to bring us closer to the past, I guess. Jonathan Vance is a professor of history at Western University in Ontario. We're talking about uh, this incredible project that they've embarked on for Remembrance Day this year, which involves sending postcards, replicas of postcards that were sent from the front back to Canada more than 100 years ago during the First World War uh, to the addresses today, to whomever lives at that address today. Um, I guess I hope I have that right. How did you go about selecting the postcards and the recipients? (laughs) Well, we have in the collection, we have about 15,000 postcards. So my research team and I had a lot to go through. No doubt. And yeah. particularly in, in big cities, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Halifax, there's been a fair bit of, of urban renewal, if you like. So a lot of individual houses have disappeared. A lot of streets have disappeared. So the first step was going through all these 15,000 postcards, making sure we could identify the, the soldier who sent them and making sure that the building, the house to which they were sent still existed it some most of them were houses still some of them were businesses we sent them to, to businesses as well uh we relied on google street view to to get a look and make sure there was still a, a house there and once we did all that it probably got rid of about half of the fifteen thousand. uh the house never no longer existed or or that sort of thing and then once we narrowed it down we started to narrow it down a little further by doing some research into the soldier who sent the postcard did it have uh, something interesting to say. Was it an interesting image or whatever? We eventually sent out a lot of ones because whether or not we think it's interesting, it meant a great deal at the time. And that's mm-hmm. part of what we're trying to to convey. Uh, and so it was a very long process from from picking the postcard to then doing all the digital trickery with it to take off the stamp and the postmark and, the, and add a postal code and, and this and that, uh, and then print up the finished copy and, and pop them in, in the mailboxes to be uh, delivered across Canada. Wow. And and uh, yeah, we were jo- we were joking earlier that with you'd have to teach a lot of people how to put a stamp on a postcard these days. But uh, uh, you so you picked about 400, right? Do you have do you have some do you have a favorite or do you have the ones that really stood out to you? 
One stick in my mind, particularly, we have one that we sent out. It was a photo postcard uh, of four young soldiers from Guelph, Ontario, in their maybe early 20s, maybe probably late teens. Uh, And it was a picture of the four of them, a fairly candid picture taken on um, at a training camp in Canada that one of them had sent to his family back in Guelph. And the tragic thing was that all four of them were killed during the war. So here's these four friends in their late teens or early 20s. They they look hale and hearty and young and enthusiastic in this postcard. And you know when you look them up that not a single one of them came home uh, after the war. So that that one stuck with me. Those are the ones that get in your head and don't leave. Yeah, they really drive home. It really drives home the sacrifice and the youth, too. I think sometimes these pictures seem exactly. like they're from a different era, but these were just yeah. young men, you know, people the same age as your students, right? Well, exactly. And the, the fact that they, they typically wear mustaches and, and carry riding crops to make them look older, it doesn't it doesn't really work. They're kids and they write like kids. And, then, and like, on the other side of the scale, you have a lot of guys who are, we have a lot from, from relatively new fathers who are writing home to their, their infant children. And there are cases in that when the postcard will say, oh, I can't wait to see you and, and see your new brother. And, and you know that he's never coming home. That's another one that, that gets you a sucker punch in the gut, if you like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very, I mean, these are very intimate, even though they're postcards. So everyone thinks of them as being more public. And I think anybody who's written a postcard knows that you expect people to read it. So they're maybe not as intimate, but they're they're intimate in a different way. They're intimate in a different way. They 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 reveal things that people actually thought about during big historical events. Their mind was not fixated on the war 24-7. They write about, oh, send my baseball gloved cap because we're playing ball here. Um, right. How are the crops doing? Uh, uh, how are the neighbors? Are you going to replace the roof? Stuff that normal workaday things that during wartime life goes on. These concerns don't simply disappear. And it's it's helpful to be reminded that these young men and women had their own lives to live that concerned them, even though they were overseas and involved in, in these huge events. Any reaction from the recipients? I guess they, I don't know if they've received them yet, but any reaction from recipients so far? The reactions are starting to trickle in. We tied them so they would, we hope, arrive at people's homes over this weekend. One of the common reactions so far is is probably amazement. Why would anyone bother to do all this stuff? (laughs) Uh, And then once they think about it, people write and, and, and say, I never thought about this, but it's really neat. I think we're all, anyone who lives in an older home is curious about who lived there before. And the fact that that they can have something written by a previous resident who was involved in these these huge events, I think it really triggers people's imaginations. And I know one one person who responded says, well, I'm, I'm looking at my house differently to see what would have been there in 1917 and what this person would have seen on a daily basis compared to what I see on a daily basis. Yeah, amazing to think that maybe your home in Guelph might have uh, a history that stretches all the way over to the battlefields of of, mm-hmm. of Europe, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Jonathan Vance, yeah. thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. Good to talk to you. Chris Holopina didn't come from a military family, but he knew from an early age growing up in central Manitoba that he wanted to become a soldier. He joined the reserves at just 16 in Portage La Prairie. After graduating from high school, he enlisted as a member of a combat engineer regiment in Petawawa, Ontario. And Holopina would serve um, in three different spots. He went to Cyprus in 1992. He was in Croatia in 1993 before deploying to Bosnia in late 95, early 96 as part of a UN peacekeeping mission there called Operation Alliance. He would continue his habit throughout it all 
of calling home every week to speak to his mom and his only sibling, a sister, Ashley, uh, while he was away. While he was in Bosnia, he actually collected and organized. He started a toy drive for kids there. That's what kind of soldier he was. His family collected, packed, and shipped donations to Holopina, who handed them out afterwards. He was just weeks away from coming home, when on the way to help a group of British soldiers trapped in a minefield. The vehicle he was in swerved to avoid an accident and crashed. He, at just 22 was killed, the first Canadian to die in that mission. Now, more than a quarter century later, his mom is in Ottawa to take part in the National Remembrance Day ceremonies on Saturday as this year's Silver Cross Mother. Gloria Hooper will represent all Silver Cross moms when she places a wreath at the National War Memorial on Remembrance Day. Um, It's a tradition that goes back more than 100 years now. And she'll also represent all moms who've lost a son or daughter in the line of duty. It's bringing back a lot of emotions for Hooper, who lives with dementia. But her son's story is one that she never tires of sharing. And Gloria Hooper joins me now. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's quite the honor. What was your reaction when you found out that this was going to be the Silver Cross mother would be you this year? I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I (laughs) thought that I was being teased by my daughter (laughs) and that she did that just for me. Yeah. What an honor. What an honor. I mean, you yeah. know, it's, um, tell me a bit about Chris, because I think sometimes, you know, the Bosnian war, sometimes, you know, it's, it's been a while. So people, people have forgotten a bit about it. Tell me a bit about Chris, because he sounds like he was a great kid. He was, and he was looking after the kids. Yeah. That was a big, something he was really special to him when he was overseas on his tours was, exactly. was the kids there. What did, yeah. what did he tell you about them? Not too much. He'd just say, can you get clothes and send them for me? So I did. I'd have boxes and boxes. Right. I get, I gather that he, he wanted to be a soldier from the time he was very young. Yep, <laughs> he was. I think he was about three, maybe younger, and he'd be walking around in the grass and with water and stuff like that. He had little guns, and that was what he was doing. What was your reaction when he said he wanted to be a soldier? Uh, at first, I was quite... And he says, oh, I'll be here a long time before I do something. Oh, yeah. Two years later, and he was going overseas. They found out just for his birthday that he was going to be 18 and they had just found that oh he's still 17 (laughs) and they let him stay because they said it was close to the end you must remember when he packed off to go far away to to a place i'm sure that no one no one in the family had been to right to go to bosnia it was seemed like such a far away away that's right and nobody saw him or heard from him or Stuff like that. They all knew that he went to do what he had to do. I know he was cooking for some of the guys that were in the team, and they didn't want to cook. So they got him to cook, and they did his work. So that's what he did. I'd forgotten, you know, then, because I was I was living away, but we're, we're almost the same age, Chris and I. I was living away at the same time. It was really hard to get a hold of people back then. It's not like today. I guess he used to call you, though, every week. 
Yeah. And that was what they had was one week and he'd phone and talk. And then I had to give him his sister because he couldn't go without talking to her. Was he homesick? No. Like when he went the first time, he was 17 and went. And then he came home. And I think he was home for a few weeks. And then he was gone again. I know when he went to the third time, they phoned him while he was overseas and transferred him over. That's how he wanted it. So that's what he got. And like when they had their three weeks holidays, he went all over. He just loved that. You must have noticed the change in him between 17 and 22. I mean, he'd been away. He'd been a soldier. He must have grown up pretty fast. Oh, he did. He really did. Did you worry about him? Not really, because I knew that he would fight himself out of there. But he really liked it. Has this been tough? Has this been tough to think? I mean, it's it's been it's been been a while. I'm sure it never goes away. I mean, I spent some time in Afghanistan, and I know what it's like. I mean, I don't know what it's like personally, but I've seen it, and I know how hard it can be. Has it been tough to sort of think about it again and talk about it again? No, because no? I I think about him at home every day. So it's just I'm shocked that he was old enough to be in there. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I, I suppose after a while, the love stays and, and but, you know, and and you still miss them. But I guess you, yeah. you learn to deal with that grief, right? Well, yeah. And Ashley was still young. His sister, so, right? Uh, yeah. And because of her, I got better. Like I wasn't as me. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, it, it became, sadly, it became more normal for Canadians to get used to people, for, to soldiers losing yeah. their lives. But when, when you know, when Chris uh, passed, it wasn't. It was very rare. And it must, have been t- it must have been tough because you wouldn't have had a lot of people to turn to or talk to. Right. And he used to phone me. And then if Ashley was home, he talked to her. So we talked to him. All the time. Tell me a bit about what you're thinking about Saturday, because it's um, you, you represent all moms. Yeah, I right? know. What 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 uh, what would you like people to know about about you and your family and Chris that we should be thinking about on Saturday? Well, just the way he was when he went to work and that, and what happened to him, and how he came back. And we had to learn this all over again. And 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 for the other parents too, I guess I guess as years went on, you would have seen other parents losing their kids too. And I suppose yeah. you always knew knew what they were going through. Yeah, I did. Is it going to be? Um, I suppose it'll be a proud day and a sad day on Saturday for you. Exactly. I would wish it was him coming back, <laughs> and my daughter's coming. So. I feel a lot better. Yeah. Well, Gloria, I I wish you all and your family all the very best on Saturday. We'll be watching, thinking of you. Thank you. (laughs) 
Why is Remembrance Day important and why should you not forget? Remembrance Day to me is about remembering the dark things that happened. My hope is that we learn from the past. It seems we don't. If we don't hear their stories, people will forget how we got here. And I think if we don't remember the past, we have a tendency to repeat it. And I think we've got to maintain as to how we got here, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. Trench warfare, machine guns, gas attacks were, I think, some of the most horrible things we've ever done to other human beings. Men came back with bad lungs from being gassed, wounds that they hadn't healed properly. And why did our fathers not talk about it? I think our fathers had their belly full of war didn't want to be reminded of the horrors they saw. That is a snippet uh, from a new series debuting on Remembrance Day on the History Channel called Our War. And it really helps. Uh, it's all about tracking relatives as they try to search for the stories lost about their relatives who served, whether it be in the First World War or the Second World War. A lot of those stories, of course, forgotten, not told, not written down, sometimes taken to the grave. Oftentimes people just didn't want to talk about them. Or in other cases were sworn to secrecy and couldn't talk about them as one story in the series documents, which is a fascinating one. Uh, again, it's about these individuals, ordinary individuals, Canadians who made brave and profound contributions to the war efforts, both in the First and Second World Wars. For example, the first episode, McLeod and Hereford, is one is about a nurse who uh, served in the First World War and was killed, and her great-grandniece, who happens to also be a nurse so there's a connection there and they dig into her history and another one is about a young man who's thinking of enlisting and wants to know about more about his uh, great aunt who actually served with the women's canadian royal naval service in the communications area very secret uh tex antonucci is the co-executive producer of our war and he joins me now thank you so much thank you for having me what an interesting premise to sort of help Canadians find out the hidden histories of their uh, of the, of their relatives who who had served in the past because people have so many questions and yet oftentimes these histories often went unspoken, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think one of the major inspirations for us creating the series was, you know, maybe some regrets that some of us had with not asking more questions, you know, with our own ancestors. You know, we we produced this series with the intent of celebrating those who sacrificed and contributed so immensely to Canada at the time of war, you know, and what became apparent when producing the series is that we as an audience connect so deeply with the heroes on such a personal and intimate level by joining their descendants on that journey. I think that's all rooted because many of us can relate to family and loved ones having sacrificed so much with the ultimate goal for a better tomorrow. So, yeah, it's uh, it's really quite special. I was interested, too, in the people that you selected, because oftentimes these are, you know, relative. Well, I mean, great, great, great nephews and great, great nieces who in some way have a connection to what to what they're ancestor did so you have a nurse who wants to look into the to the wartime heroics of her great grand aunt i guess who was also quite a groundbreaking nurse in the first world war you look into a young man who was sort of thinking about joining the military you want to find out more about his great grand aunt who had, who had had a really fascinating military career so that there's that connection that that happens too so there's more than just sort of curiosity there's actually you know there's there's a, there's a story for the for the searcher as well as the sought mm-hmm. yeah well you know it's interesting and not to get into too much of how we 
built the series or the mm-hmm. sort of special sauce that made it. But we did actually start with these historical figures and work our way back. Right. Um, because what was really important, we you know, with the limited resources, it, it, this is a huge undertaking. We had a team of researchers that were looking into all these different stories that we then had to peel back the layers and then find these individuals who were tied to these stories. So, you know, we want we wanted the the reveals that the individuals were were encountering or discovering on the journey to be real and authentic and it could it, it needed to be information that they were not privy of uh, prior to being on the show so you know the 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 fact that you know with with well jacob's story being mm-hmm. inspired to serve and 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 jillian's story of of also being a nurse you know was really quite quite something that you know that was a reveal for us as well you know it was i i was interested just by how much information though i mean you 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 tap on a lot of people who obviously probably do a lot of volunteer work i know there's some professionals out there but there are a lot of people safeguarding these histories it's just a question of finding them right mm-hmm. no absolutely that's right yeah. Um, and, and they add a great amount to the show because it, there are people out there who hold this information. A lot of this stuff, even, you know, First World War um, documentation is there. If, if, if relatives are curious about what happened back then, it, it is findable. And that's not always true of things that happened more than 100 years ago. No, for sure. Like, I have to say it's a lot of work, yes. it's a lot of work to connect the dots. Like I said, we, we, you know, we had... Uh, you know, a, a significant amount of resources in producing a television series to be able to connect those dots. I, I, I do think, you know, for people who are wanting to go on a journey themselves, it's it's going to be quite an undertaking to 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 to, to do it all. But um, yes, the information is there. It's just how far you need to go to uncover it. Yeah, text is always the magic of television. You make it look kind of easy, right? I mean, there is, it kind of follows. I'm sure there was a lot of stuff, a lot of legwork in the middle that was left out. Uh, you know what the other thing that I found really interesting about, about the, the episodes that I've watched is that we forget how young they were. You know, the, the people who served, we forget how young they were. There's a moment, I think, when Jacob is reminded, um, and he's a young man, that that his great-grandaunt was his age when she went off to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, 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 I think it's something that we as viewers today need to tap into a bit, you know, to see what was at stake you know there was a tr- there was a clear understanding from these edu- individuals that there was no other choice than to serve and you know you look at you know rena mclean's story for example who she came from a very privileged background she did not need to serve but she decided to become a nurse and be shipped off into the battlefields for the sake of serving for our country with uh, an amazing amount of bravery. Yeah. It's just something that we need to remember and, and, and be, uh, you know, carrying these stories into the future for our future generations. Yeah. It was interesting too, how some of the conversations are couched in kind of more modern things around PTSD and trauma and so on. Uh, When I know that, you know, back in the, certainly in the first world war and definitely, you know, in the second world war, if you had family that fought, those just weren't terms that were used. It's interesting to watch people now look back at the sacrifices and the work that was done a hundred years ago, 75 years ago, and sort of see it through that lens as well. Mm-hmm. Well, that was really important for us in developing the show and, and making sure that 
it, it is bringing these stories that have been told over the decades to a new audience. And it, it was really important for us to, to uh, ensure that, uh, that it connects. Yeah. Ultimately, what would you like viewers to walk away from? Because I walked away with so much from it. I mean, they're just there are little moments. I, I recommend viewers watch it for themselves because there are little moments that are just incredible. There's one about the color of a uniform that that really stands out to me. But what would you like viewers to to walk away from uh, when watching this? Well, uh, you know what? I think it's really quite simple. It's just to remember and to never forget and to share the the opportunities to to bring our children into it to understand that the the freedom and and the values and the the experiences that we have today in Canada are the result of the sacrifices that these individuals uh gave for this country and i think that's uh really really important as uh you know, you see the current state of the way things are today. It's, it, I think it just holds true uh, more so than ever. Yeah. And, and watching it, it just reminded me and that this has always been a truism. And, you know, I, I work, I'm a journalist, but, you know, there is so much more to a name on a plaque than just a name on a plaque. No, absolutely. And and, and that really, truly is what inspired us to, to make a series like this. Well, Tex, thank you so much for your time and explaining this. Uh, the series is called Our War. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the time. On Remembrance Day, I think of my grandfather and his twin brother, uh, the texture writes. They enlisted and were part of the Winnipeg Grenadiers who were captured in the Battle of Hong Kong. They spent years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. They also both survived residential schools. Despite what they endured, they were both wonderful, kind men. Also because of their heritage, they were denied the right to vote until 1965. I think of them often. They hardly spoke about to the POW camp and never spoke about residential school, uh, both unreal hells to live through. Absolutely. I actually spent time in Hong Kong at the Commonwealth war graves there, uh, I think with Prime Minister Harper at the time. It's not a history that's often talked about what happened uh, to the Canadians who served there and were captured by the Japanese and interned in, in uh, the prisoner of war camps there. But it was a horrific existence. And anyone who survived, I have no doubt, um, probably didn't want to talk too much about it as well. I mean, when I was growing up, Remembrance Day was always a time to honor those wars long past, right? It was about the First World War, the Second World War, or Korea, um, and the older looking veterans that had fought in them. For me, a veteran meant someone who was older, much older. But that is absolutely no, no longer the case. For years now, we've had amongst us uh, most of the 40,000 men and women who served in Afghanistan, a conflict that, of course, cost the lives of 158 among them and left more than 2,000 injured. It is a war that I witnessed up close. I was there first in 2006, two more times after that as well. Um, I don't come from a military family, so this was really my first exposure uh, to that life. I met the soldiers, witnessed what they faced and endured firsthand. We watched coffins draped in Canadian flags be loaded onto military aircraft during those sad, silent early morning ceremonies held at sunrise in Kandahar because of, of the desert heat. Uh, they couldn't hold them later in the day. Um, and so while I've been to the beaches of Normandy and other places where Canadians, so many Canadians fought and died, including in Hong Kong, on Remembrance Day, it's often the desert dust of southern Afghanistan. And all the Canadians who served there, the ones that I met, that always come to mind. Um, but as all conflicts do, the fight is also, that fight is also fading a bit from our collective memory. The sacrifices made, the promises made to those who served slip a little further into the past each and every year. 
That is not the case, though, for all those who carry the physical and mental scars of that war, including now-retired Major Mark Campbell. During his second tour in 2008, Campbell stepped on a bomb, an IED, uh, and lost both his legs. And what was followed was a long road back through PTSD, chronic pain, government red tape, a lot of that, and depression. Of course, all the impacts of coming home um, to a family and all that had changed. Um, it was a soldier like Major Campbell that I wanted to hear from tonight. So I approached him for a chat about serving your country, about war, about sacrifice, and all that ensues. And retired Major Campbell joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, absolutely. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Tell me a bit about Remembrance Day for you now. I mean, it's um, I was we were mentioning it's been now about a decade since more than a decade since Canada left Afghanistan. There's been the fall mm-hmm. of Kabul, obviously. Uh, you were there. I mean, what happened to you is 15 years ago now. How do you approach Remembrance Day, and what would you like people to know about uh, you and Afghan vets at this time of year? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, for me, a lot of people have a mistaken perception that that um, Remembrance Day is 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 all doom and gloom and a somber affair. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, in, in my 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 perspective, I just attended a, a celebration of life for for a soldier that I had served alongside in Afghanistan, actually, and uh, he he passed away um, more or less uh, through his own hand. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, it was a very unfortunate, terrific guy, and uh, you know. But uh, we got together, and and it was a it was a really good um, celebration of life, and it truly was a celebration. And that sort of shifted my perspective. And and this was just uh, this past summer, but tried to approach Remembrance Day as a celebration of people's lives, if that makes any sense to you. Um, the people that uh, that didn't come home, um, the people that that I knew that have that have passed in service, and I, you know, I served for thirty four years, so I mean that goes back to training accidents back during the Cold War and whatnot, where we lost guys as well. Hmm. I think of the guys we lost, and I think of the good times that we had together, or the things that we did together that were were positive and, 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 and uplifting and, uh, you know, uh, maybe the laughs we had together with, uh, with the certain guys. And that's the kind of thing I think of. I don't, I don't think of doom and gloom and graves and, and, and that kind of, that sort of thing. Yeah. It must, I mean, it's different for soldiers, right. That it is for non, I mean, I think a lot of people, civilians are always very, um, sort of it's it's very somber for civilians but i suppose right. when you've been on the front lines there's both there's the obvious the obvious sadness with that comes with losing comrades then and and as you mentioned continued which is something we could talk about um but cool. also the recognition that that the you know that these are times that you've lived through with people you loved right absolutely I guess time heals all wounds too, and uh, the, you know the further we move away from Afghanistan, that particular conflict, it's not that we forget uh, by any stretch. Uh, certainly, those of us who were there will never forget. I mean, I can't forget every time I look down and see my missing legs. You know, I'm instantly taken back. So uh, for me, kind of every day is Remembrance Day. So I mean, that one particular day of the of the, of the year, I understand. You know, I, I sincerely appreciate the fact that the country pauses every year for a couple of minutes to, to think about that. And uh, I think it's a wonderful thing, Remembrance Day. I think it's an important uh, event. But for me, it's it's not a big deal every year, uh, Remembrance Day. I, I, I tend to I tend to remember the guys constantly. You mentioned that earlier. I mean, uh, we, we haven't been talking about this as much as maybe we did 
even five, four or five years ago. But how has right. it been? How has it been for you? And you're mentioning losing another comrade this year. We know that the PTSD situation and then just the, yeah. the amount of services available has been really rough. And then people's eyes start to turn away. And I wonder how, how you've been because there were so, I remember all the promises that were made 15 years mm-hmm. ago to you and your, to you and those who fought. And I'm wondering yeah. if those promises have been kept. Well, in, in some regards, no, um, I can't say that they have in terms of, um, you know, veteran services and, 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 and benefits and the, the specifically the financial compensation package for the guys that were injured after uh, the 1st of April 2006 under the, the new program. Mm-hmm. And they now have what they call pension for life, but it's not really a pension. It's it's more an amortization of, of the lump sum right. um, combined with some, you know, financial recognition for pain and suffering and, and, and so on for those that have chronic issues like I do. So, you know, some, some promises were kept, uh, others not so much. I mean, we still don't see uh, an Afghan monument. You know, there, there has been a selection. I guess they've decided on a design. Uh, there was apparently a poll taken. I don't know. I wasn't asked to participate. but uh, And apparently the, 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 the site has been selected in La Breton Flats in, in Ottawa near the uh, War Museum. But uh, nothing's happened yet. It's a long uh, so. time. It's a long time. I mean, I've seen many, many monuments at this point. But, yeah, I suppose yeah. it's moving. Yeah, it's yeah. moving. It's moving ahead, it, I guess. It's moving slowly. Uh, it, it's, it's like everything um, to do with the federal government. I mean, I still participate to a certain extent trying to keep a finger in the pie and and, and influence things in a positive direction through my participation in the uh, Minister of Veterans Affairs Policy Advisory Group. And uh, I've been at that for seven years. And, and uh, yeah, what I, one thing I've, I've, I've come to understand is that all change that occurs at the federal level happens at a glacial pace. I mean, that, that certainly I look forward to seeing it when I'm, you know, uh, once it's done and, and I get an opportunity to go to Ottawa. 40,000 Canadians plus served in Afghanistan over that 10-year span. Uh, some of us multiple times. I know people that were there for four, four tours, you know, spent two years of their lives there. Um, cumulatively speaking, and most of that in combat, you know, and uh, that's a long time. Retired Major Mark Campbell is with me at this half hour. Uh, he served in Afghanistan twice, uh, as he was mentioning earlier, lost his legs in an IED incident in Afghanistan in 2008, 15 years ago. We've been talking a bit about the monument, the national monument that's yet to be built. Apparently, it's moving along. Uh, maybe we'll see it sometime in the next five years or four or five years or so. How about for you, Major Campbell? I know it was, I've been reading a lot about when you first came home and it's been, I think people forget or don't know because they just don't know unless they have it touched them personally, how difficult it is, and not just for you, but for everyone around you too, that the transition back to life, to, to living with, with the disability is not is not easy. And it's not easy. It's, it's As you mentioned, every day is a reminder for you. You don't need Remembrance Day to think back to your service. Right. Yeah. It's interesting living with a disability and, and certainly acquiring a disability later in life. I was, uh, yeah, 43 when I got hit. I, I would argue, I would put it to you that it was it was harder on my family than it was on me. Uh, the military trained me to deal with adversity and, and, and you know, to persevere and, and, and whatnot, to be resilient. My family never had the benefit of any of that sort of training. And when I was um, severely injured, um, it was it was devastating for them. I almost would have been better if I had I been killed. Well, uh, to be honest, to be blunt, that's tough. Because well, it's 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 true. You know, somebody dies, uh, the, the family grieves, and then they move on with their lives. Uh, in my case, I, I'm like this constant reminder to my family 
of, of, of the price that, you know, Canada paid during, during the Afghanistan conflict. And uh, it's, it's, it's touched my family uh, massively, severely, and, and not, not necessarily for the better. My wife uh, had to take on uh, a whole bunch more. Uh, of the, the the family responsibilities, um, I you know I used to be a bit of a handyman. Uh, now I can't you know barely swing a hammer. I'm stuck in a wheelchair. So my my family has had to step up in a in a big way with the things that I used to do for the family. Um, I contribute where and where and how I can, but uh, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, nothing prepares the families for. I mean, I know your wife was military as well. I mean, but nothing prepares yeah. people, I guess, for what happens in those situations. And even Canadians, no. it had been so long since Canadians really had seen the, the devastation of war. You know, we'd I, I think yeah. people didn't realize what 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 well, it was. I mean, you know, yeah. Unless a family's gone through something like a, a vehicle accident, or you know, that's left somebody severely disabled, <laughs> the, the, the or you know, a stroke or something like that. Some some misfortune befalls the family, and they're left with somebody who's severely disabled. And those families get it, and uh, and the rest of us sort of just carry on with life. I mean, you know, when I was able-bodied and healthy and fit, I didn't didn't even think about things like being disabled. You know, we tend to be outliers, societally speaking, and a lot of disabled people become shut-ins because they're somehow ashamed of their their disability, right, or 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 or, or what have you. Um, but they have issues. And uh, so it's, it's really unfortunate in that regard, but it also means that, you know, the rest of society doesn't really see that many disabled people going about your, your daily life. And, and so it's easy to forget what, what it might be like until it hits you. And then when it hits the family, boy, it hits hard. You, when yeah. you think back, when you think back to those to to that time now, I mean, we've talked about that conflict, and it's you know I, I don't want to get into the geopolitics of it. I mean, I think mm-hmm. one thing I remember from my time there is you know you don't have to agree with a war to understand that those they're fighting are are doing it out of the goodness of out of the goodness of their. I mean, the work that Canadian soldiers did there was, if you saw it up close, was absolutely well-intentioned and, 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 you know, they put their hearts and souls into that very dusty, strange place and, and left a lot of, mm-hmm. left a lot of their souls back there. Unfortunately, and you mentioned that earlier, yeah. another soldier taking his own life, the scars, the scars continue. And I think, I just hope we never forget that. I hope we never forget the sacrifice that you made. Well, and that's, that's what Remembrance Day is all about, right? I mean, yeah, like you said, we, oh, veterans used to be these, these old gray haired guys in, in, in Navy blazers, you know, with the Legion badge on and, and chests full of medals from, from initially the first and second world war in Korea. And, and, and then, you know, the first world war guys have pretty much, well, they all passed away now. Uh, most of the second world war guys have passed away and, 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 and it's eaten into the Korea vets. And so those gray-haired old veterans are dwindling away, and they've been replaced by this new generation of, of upstart veterans, so to speak, uh, who don't necessarily wear the, the the navy blazer and the gray flannel slacks and you know whatnot. Um, the the forces are in pretty dire straits these days, due largely to government neglect, um, financially and 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 equipment-wise and procurement-wise and all the rest of it. And recruiting uh, reflects that, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, when the forces don't get the support they need from the government, people don't join the forces. And uh, so it leaves the, the rest who continue to serve, those who are left, uh, have, to, have to work that much harder uh, to make up for all the missing people. It's, uh, it's a tough road to hoe right now to be in the forces. And I, uh, I tip my hat to, to those who continue to serve. 
Yeah, and just for you, uh, when you look back at that time, I mean, I know you spent 34 years in the military. It was a long career, right? Um, ups and downs, that's for yeah, sure. Ups and downs. Still, still look back at it. You must look back at it with, with yeah, with ups and with good and bad, right? Uh, I'll tell you right now, it was a great career. Uh, I have no regrets. There was a lot more uh, good about my career from my perspective than there was um, negative stuff. Uh, and the ability to serve Canada, which is something I'd wanted to do since I was a little kid. If you think you did, you've done or are doing what you're meant to do, then how could you possibly have regrets, right? Major Campbell, uh, I'll be thinking about you tomorrow. Thank you so much. I appreciate your candor and your time tonight. Much appreciated. Uh, you're very welcome, Ben. And thanks, thanks for having me on. And uh, uh, thank you to the people of Canada um, who pause and reflect uh, today about uh, about people like myself. It's it's greatly appreciated. <laughs> What I constantly hear from Iranian Americans, they say the problem in Canada is far, far worse than you could imagine. That is a clip from Gab- Gabrielle Norona, who is a special advisor for the Iran Action Group at the U.S. Department of State, explaining that he's hearing from Iranian, Iranian Americans that uh, the intimidation that they face, uh, certainly dissidents and activists face from the Iranian regime, is far worse here in Canada than it is on the other side of the border. It poses the question, it demands the question, are Canadians here safe from Iran, from the reach of that regime, those who uh, would oppose the regime once they're here. It is amongst the most dangerous regimes in the world today. Of course, they sponsor groups such as Hezbollah and Hamas. We've been talking about a lot about that in the past little while. But they also, and obviously back at home, we're aware of the kind of oppression that exists within Iran itself. Um, we saw the uprisings last year and how they were crushed, the murders of dissidents, the imprisonment of dissidents. In fact, the Nobel Peace Prize winner this year, Nargis Mohammadi, is in an Iranian prison. She was on a hunger strike last I saw to protest against uh, the conditions in that prison. We spoke um, to someone who served time with her the day that that Nobel Peace Prize was announced. There are more than 200,000 people that have fled Iran for Canada. Um, But when they arrive, many of them learn that the long arm of the Islamic Republic reaches all the way here. So this week on the new reality, the Global News Current Affairs Show, the Global TV Current Affairs Show, They've looked into and found, uh, looked into this topic and found some exclusive and alarming details about the growing danger to Canada's security. Um, joining me now is Global BC reporter Negar Mojahedi, Mojahedi who uh, is both a Global BC reporter and the reporter on this story, and she joins me now. Uh, Negar, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is a, a story I think Canadians may be somewhat aware of, but the scale of it that you've uncovered is, I think, would shock anybody. Just the the amount of harassment that people, Iranians coming here to escape harassment, face in this country. Well, it's pretty ironic because they are leaving the country to get away from all of that. And yet they come here and the same people who are responsible for so much of the evil uh, back in Iran are enjoying their freedoms in Canada with their, you know, ill-gotten wealth. Yeah, that, that's part of the story, too, because it is the wealth, too. It's sort of the comfort with which they live here, too. How does it happen that people who are obviously Canadian, the Canadian government should know about, don't they don't know, and they end up on the streets of Canada harassing the very people that have fled them? See, so that is part of the problem is, is how did they get here in the first place? And this has been an issue that the Iranian Canadian community has been raising for almost 20 years now. Nothing seems to be, uh, you know, getting done about it. You know, even this past summer, we had a former Iranian senior minister who 
managed to come to the country and and go vacation. And while he was here, his name is uh, Hassan Azizadeh Hashemi. He was a former uh, senior minister, part of the Rouhani administration, which is responsible for the shooting down of Flight 752 that killed dozens of Canadians. Mm -hmm. And while he was here, he reportedly made a threat against um, Hamid Esmailiyoun and foreign media outlets and said that he would enact his revenge against Hamid Esmailiyoun and the foreign media outlets. And Hamid lost his wife and his nine-year-old daughter in the shooting down of Flight 752. You know, we spoke to an immigration lawyer and he was like, it boggles my mind. I have no idea. Eventually, this individual was denied temporary foreign residence, albeit after, you know, there was a public outcry and after this had gone viral on social media. And our immigration minister, Mark Miller, you know, he tweeted that the decision was being made based on Iran's disregard for human rights. Well, if that was the case, how did he get here in the first place? Now, another thing I wanted to add is that when you go to Iran and you talk to even a taxi driver, they will tell you, oh, you want to know where our government officials are? They're enjoying their freedoms in Canada. So, I mean, that's the reputation that um, Canada has in Iran. That that tells you a lot. It does. And it's amazing that Canada has both become a sanctuary for Iranians fleeing that regime and, and a safe haven for the members of that regime at the same time. I mean, we've had Hamad Ismailian on the show before. And, and uh, is this common? Does this happen? Because I was telling you earlier, I interviewed Miriam Shafapur, who had been in Evan prison with Nargis Mohammadi, who just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And she, I mean, they anybody here who speaks up about the regime seems to be inviting some sort of consequence uh, and and it and it's and it seems incredibly widespread what did you find yes um iranians are under constant threat in canada and and the problem is is that a lot of times they're too scared to go forward to law enforcement they're worried that a you know nothing might be done about it and b then they end up being harassed and and threatened even further and that it would further escalate uh, the situation. Uh, We spoke to this uh, one BC lawyer, Ramin Jubin, who's created this database, actually, uh, where he's investigating the number of regime officials and their affiliates living in Canada. And right now he's got over 700 confirmed cases. And what he told us was that He's almost like this bridge between the community and police because people feel comfortable coming forward and and talking to someone with the, you know, the anonymity that you get uh, with a lawyer. Right. One of the cases that I thought, and this had come up uh, earlier, I think, is that uh, Masa Elinijad, who's an activist, a a very prominent one, uh, was told basically, and she's based in the U.S., don't go to Canada. I mean, the FBI told her, don't go. I mean, you uncovered this. That is that is pretty damning. Oh, it, it was shocking. It was it was even shocking uh, for me. I had no idea that it was uh, to that extent. And the FBI told her, you know, if you are if you insist, then OK, if you have to go, for example, for a Halifax security conference or something like that. But we will need months to prepare for your security. Now, we spoke to Gabriel Nerona. He's a, a U.S. security expert. He was a, a former advisor at the at the U.S. State Department from 2019 to 2021. And when we told him, he, he just said, you know what? It sounds like she's preparing to go to Iraq. And this is not normal for Canada. What isn't Canada doing enough of, do you think? Well, it seems to be that there's no consequences. And if you don't fear any consequences, then then why not? I mean, that case that we brought up earlier with that former Iranian minister, again, it went viral. He was spotted in the background of a TV news report on Quebec tourism. What about the rest of them that aren't being spotted in a, in a random, you know, report on, on Quebec tourism, right? So 
there are obviously a lot more than that. And uh, if it doesn't go viral and it doesn't go social, it, it appears that nothing is being done. In fact, Hamid Esmailin told us that he went forward to the RCMP with his concerns and they told him, listen, you know, our resources are stretched too thin. We're too busy with Russia and China right now. We, we can't help you. Right. I mean, you raise a really interesting point there because it's not as if Canada isn't acutely aware of the idea of foreign interference. Sometimes I think it depends on who's doing the interfering. And it feels like Iran has sort of been one that has been paid lip service to, but maybe not paid enough attention to. Ultimately, will it take something really awful happening to to uh, an outspoken critic of the regime here in Canada for Canada to finally take this as seriously as it should? It appears, uh, unfortunately, that uh, could be the case. Uh, going back to Gabriel Nerona, the U.S. security expert, uh, you know, he was saying that Canada seems to be not doing anything about this and that he said, quote, you know, uh, as a result, this, the smoking gun will be the bo- dead body of an Iranian Canadian. I mean, you've worked on a lot of stories like this. What would you like audiences to walk away from when they watch these? Because I think oftentimes it seems, I think sometimes for Canadians, this seems like a faraway problem. Maybe they don't understand the complexities of the of what dissidents are up to, the kind of oppression they face back home. You know, the, the unacceptability of being targeted when you're in a, in a new country where you're supposed to be safe. What would you like viewers to walk away with this from this one with? Well, a few things. Number one, uh, kind of to the point of what Massey Ali Najad says in our investigative documentary, and that is Canada has this beautiful reputation. But when you look at the reality, you know, if you're standing up for human rights, you can't also invite and allow these types of individuals to flourish inside the country. You know, something needs to be done about that. And also to pay attention to diaspora communities, not just the Iranian community, but all diaspora communities. They know what they're talking about, right? Um, They know better than anybody else. Yeah, well, and and Negar Moshtahedi, thank you so much for your time. And uh, by the way, the new reality tomorrow night, Saturday night at 7 p.m. for this piece. Thank you so much and great work. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I don't know about you, but I found this to be a bit of a tough week. Anytime we, we, for some reason, when we fall back, I just find it hard to acclimatize to that to that one less hour of daylight in the afternoon. Uh, it's not that we don't get up early. My wife's up early, so I, I'm, we take advantage of that early morning sunshine a little bit. But for some reason, this week I've just felt discombobulated to use a word that I don't really know. I don't really know what it means, but it sounds good. Um, just a little out of sorts, right? Um, the sun's been vanishing earlier. When I go out for my, I try to take a stroll sometime in the late afternoon between the time I sort of finish doing the work to prep the show and the show goes on, and that walk this week has been in the dark. It's gotten chillier. I won't complain about where I am out here on the West Coast because it's not nearly as chilly as it is in other places. It was, of course, snowing uh, in Montreal. Talking to my dad this week, it's been snowing in Ottawa. I was talking to my mom. Uh, it's just, the, it, you know what it is? It's the November blues, right? I mean, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's a tough time of year as the days get shorter and colder. Um, and again, I've been struggling a little bit with this this week. So I was curious. I don't think I have seasonal affective disorder. I don't believe so. But it feels like this week, you know, that the whole change of seasons really kind of punches you in the gut when we set the clocks back. So I wanted to find out a bit more about it. I thought I'd ask Jane Timmons-Mitchell. She's a clinical psychologist with Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Tell me a bit about, about seasonal affective disorder or SAD and just what's happening, because I think a lot of people, for a long time, people just kind of dismissed it. Uh, I think we're a lot more aware of the fact that it does impact people these days, but what's happening to our bodies? Something's being thrown out of whack. Indeed. 
A lot of things impact um, the circadian rhythm, which is the natural internal process that helps to regulate sleep. Um, and one of them is light and um, how much light we have access to, which I think was originally part of the rationale for moving the clocks around, but that hasn't always worked out um, as, as we can talk about. So, so in seasonal affective disorder, people get blue because with, with less light, their bodies react in particular ways. And then um, that kind of sets off a chain reaction. And then we start ascribing things and then who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it all kind of kind of accumulates. Now, now, when we turn the clocks back, and this is just, I mean, I think if you live in a more northern place, such as Canada or perhaps Cleveland, you're kind of honorary Canadian sitting right there uh, not on the <laughs> yes. Great Lakes. Uh, that does have an impact, I suppose, on, on, our, on the amount of sunlight we get, specifically if you have a schedule that sort of has you up in the morning, but maybe not outdoors until a little bit later. And then you're coming home in the dark, right? You're coming home at the end of the day in the dark. Right, right. And and less sunlight, you know, has all kinds of bad effects on uh, metabolism. And again, the circadian rhythm gets thrown off. One of the things that that has been shown to be very helpful, invest in these lights that you can sit under. You've probably heard about that. Yeah, I remember um, them from when I was, they were sort of, when I was a kid, they used to show, you know, scenes of Siberia with these lights. I, I did, couldn't imagine needing them here, but I guess it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea, especially for people who tend to, to be a little bit down anyway. And the only thing about that is that if you're going to do it, you want to do a little bit of research other than just, you know, your main Google search, because right. that will just pop up the things that, that are the best sellers or people who have paid more money. So you want to just look a little bit about the things that have been shown, because there is there is a pretty clear procedure for example, um, the strength of the light, what kind of light, how far you should sit from it, because um, you want to be able to have it, uh, have your face exposed for a particular period of time. Those things can actually help you with, you know, addressing the vitamin D deficiency that happens when there's less light. So um, not a bad idea. Where, where does it cross the line between sort of just feeling a bit out of sorts, as one does sometimes when you're when the mm -hmm. clocks are set back and uh, and the days are getting shorter and colder as they do uh, here. Where does that cross the line between actual seasonal, uh, season, you know, sad? Where does it cross the line between uh, this will go away in a few days and actually having something more serious? I think you want to keep track of functional impairments. If you notice that there are there's more than one area of your life that seems to be affected. If you're significantly irritable in important relationships, if you are accident prone, if you find yourself not making meetings on time, those kinds of things. And, and if there if that happens in more than one area, it might be worth taking a look at, taking a look at further um, by, you know, maybe contacting somebody to get a depression screener or um, seeing if, if you might be in need of some kind of mental health services. Uh, Jay, what are some of the ways, some of the things we should do to try to make sure that that we cushion the blow a bit on this? I gather if sunlight is the issue, then trying to get some sunlight is probably the, part of the solution. Yeah, it can be. Um, you can also, it's not a cheat, but um, uh, taking vitamin D is a good idea um, to help your metabolism. Things you really want to pay attention to. There's some really interesting tips for um, sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. on the website of the Sleep Foundation. Um, pretty easy things, but they're things that we tend to incorporate into our lives, things that don't necessarily help us with what we need to do. So